Thanks for listening to the Guns on Pegs podcast. The Guns on Pegs podcast is brought to you by ITAP Group. We hope you enjoyed the show. Hello and welcome to the Guns on Pegs podcast. I am George Brown. His name is Chris Horn. Say hello, Chris. Hello, George. How are we doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. If It's not too long since we saw each other. <laughs> We've been sitting in the car for about eight hours together, haven't we? We have, yes. Um, do you want to say why? We've been shooting, obviously. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it was, we, we, we decided uh, to travel to Wales and go and have some fun, because that's what you do at the end of January. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I've got to say, like, it's obviously something that you've, you know, you've shot in that part of the world a fair bit before. But it's the first time I've experienced, you know, what you'd call high bird shooting. I don't, would you, was anything that we saw yesterday extreme? Does it count as extreme? Or okay, Yeah, yeah, a few of them were. Do you know what I loved? So we were at Old Long Mountain. What I loved about that shoot is that they were just constantly really good birds. Like they weren't sort of like some of the Welsh shoots where they're all just out of range. And I think, I don't know, I, I find that demoralizing, but they weren't, they just had a, it was a really good shoot. I enjoyed that. And I, like, like you say, if you're used to shooting partridge land in Hampshire, Wales has proper mountains, doesn't it? <laughs> Certainly hilly. Yes. Demoralized is an interesting word. I don't think I was ever quite demoralized because I didn't, I didn't really expect to hit anything. Um, so, so when I did, it came as a very nice surprise, but, uh, I was chatting to, to someone, uh, this morning about it and they said, what was the ratio? And I said, well, the team's ratio was about mm. six to one. And then they said quite, quite, uh, uh, insightfully. And what about your ratio? And I said, well, yes, it was a multiple of that. <laughs> <laughs> six to one. I mean, that's quite a lot of missing, isn't it? But I think that's a nice little spot for a really, like if you're on a high bird day, I think any more than that. And there are lots of shoots where people shoot consistently worse than that. And I, that's where I sort of start to lose it. But but a lovely part of the world and very nicely done, I thought. Yeah, it was it was very good. Worth it. Very much worth it. Uh, I had a lovely time. Um, but enough about um, our, our jollies and japes. Um, why don't you tell everyone who our guest is today? Absolutely. Our guest today, gosh, he's, he's, this is, he's got a good bio. I like this one. He was in the Coldstream Guards to start with. Well, obviously after lots of things, but that was first major moment. Uh, he's a farmer. Uh, he's an author. He's written two books that uh, Guns on Pegs podcast listeners are most likely to have come across. They are Red Rag to a Bull and its sequel, Land of Milk and Honey, which tell how he arrived home from military duties to take over the family estate, uh, Arbigland, which is up in the borders. He's a political activist. I think probably a right term. We'll come back to that in a minute. He's a columnist for the likes of Daily Telegraph, Country Life. And of course, he's a scribe hounder. A lot of you will know him from that platform. So a massive warm welcome. Please put down your gun cleaning rods and put your hands together for Jamie Blackett. <laughs> Hello, Chris and George and the listeners. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Jamie. Your political activist statement. Are you happy? Are you okay with that one? I guess so. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that's a sort of catch-all, isn't it? I think a lot of journalists are, are also, you know, politically active. I did stand for the Scottish Parliament at, at one point unsuccessfully, but I think we 
we made our point about Nicola Sturgeon and the way things were going in Scotland. Uh, and I do what I can. I mean, I, you know, I sort of fell into writing sort of slightly, sort of almost by mistake, really. And um, uh, it gave me a platform to to write about the things I care about. And, and you know, as I've written on Scribehound, the countryside is in a bit of a bad place at the moment in some ways. And so it's good to be able to defend it and to be given a platform to defend it in the daily telegraph and other places i i imagine that whole that whole period of 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 that bit i mean as you say you've touched upon we'll we'll get back onto scottish politics later because it is tricky uh and it's certainly different to to where we are at the moment but that 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 challenge you sort of set yourself i imagine you you didn't expect to to get you know huge gains but it was a case of making a point in terms of what you were doing because yeah. of the way that things are changing so much. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote about that a lot in <clears throat> Land of Milk and Honey, which was a sort of ironical title for the way things are in Scotland <laughs> at the moment, uh, <laughs> partly. <laughs> it was also about growing milk and honey. <laughs> but, um, well, as you say, we'll come back to it. But, uh, you know, it was um, up until that point, you know, there weren't there weren't many people standing up to the SNP. I like to think we sort of changed the, the game a little bit. Very good. Someone needs to. Indeed. Well, so I th- at risk of getting off on a very serious footing, I think we'd better bring things back down to earth with a bit of a bump. Um, the way we like to start these things off, Jamie, is by having a bit of a drink. Now, the way these, this would normally go is I would ask you, what's that you're drinking? So let's let's do that. Uh, what have you got in your glass? Well, I'm just going to pour it now, actually. Um, my, my son makes rum. He had... Um, regimental ice bucket obviously so i'm going to start because um I, although uh people probably think i'm a sort of high functioning alcoholic or, or even a low functioning one drinking at half past three in the afternoon i'm going to ease myself into it with this ready to drink can of lowland rum mixed with double dutch cucumber and watermelon wow. which actually is an ideal summer drink but it's quite nice on a winter's afternoon as well so this isn't just your son making rum this is a serious operation that is i i sorry i must declare i have what you're drinking in front of me because jamie has very kindly sent us both george these drinks and um royal mail in it's all in all its glory has uh let you down <laughs> it, it has quite quite badly i'm feeling quite jealous <laughs> <laughs> So, so uh, go on then. The, the the backstory. So, what's it called, uh, and 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 how did this come about? Well, his business is called John Paul Jones Rum, and he and his his business partner Finn, my son's got Oliver, Oliver and Finn started this business during lockdown when they'd both lost their jobs and were holed up in their flat in London, and um, and they started messing about with making rum, and now, they now have four brands. This is this is the ready to drink cocktail one the the others come in bottles it's based on john paul jones was a local hero or anti-hero depending on which way you look at it he he was born on this estate was he in the the mid 18th century and went off to america and founded the american navy during the american war of independence and he was the last person to actually invade britain so he was a bit of a traitor (laughs) really (laughs) was he if he was around today he would definitely be in the smp i suspect um, <laughs> but they liked they liked him enough to put his name on the cross. Yeah, there, yeah, no, but I think it, because actually, irrespective of his his politics, and I suppose <clears throat> most people have forgiven the Americans now for breaking away and uh, becoming a 
a superpower on their own rather than the British colony. <laughs> he, you know, he was the most amazing naval commander possibly that there's ever been. And he, you know, he, he won numerous naval battles, uh, not just against us Brits, but also against the Turks when he was the admiral of the Black Sea fleet for Catherine the Great. So he's the most extraordinary man. And so very good uh, brand for somebody who had a yeah. real sort of buccaneering spirit. And my son's now exporting it to America, where it won a gold medal at the, the big American booze trade fair. So hopefully it's going to be a big success story for British exports. That's exciting. It's very so, yeah. cool. So he's doing, he's, doing, he's doing well then. I mean, obviously that gold medal is great, but I mean, is, is, it, is it going better than he expected? Uh, yeah, well, um, you know all about startups and uh, yeah, he's going pretty well. He's, he's, it's a hell of a journey. Which it's a hell of a journey he's on, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's going very well. And, um, you know, he's got some investors on board now who are very excited about it. It's being stocked in Fortnum & Mason's and Dalesford and various spaces like that. So this is so this one I'm drinking now. Actually, it just slipped down very nicely on a January afternoon. I think of it more as something that you would drink on the riverbank in the summer uh, as a sort of mm. substitute for pimps. The others... The others I've got here are definitely more winter drinks. They're, uh, they're a sort of substitute for malt whiskey, I suppose, really, that you would drink after shooting on a winter's afternoon. Not that people drink at tea after shoots so much anymore. In my youth, everybody did, but now uh, things have become a little bit more serious. So this this ready-to-drink can of Lowland rum mixed with Double Dutch. What is Double Dutch, by the way? Double Dutch is the new sort of fever tree uh, okay. or, or Schweppes. I mean, it's a sort of, they're a mixer company. Right. Okay, brilliant. Uh, it's really fresh, isn't it? Mm. It's lovely. Mm. And what I'm surprised by is, I didn't realise till I opened it, it says cucumber on it. And I really struggle to drink things with cucumber oh, really? because I find that overpower <laughs> everything. But uh, it's lovely. Um, yeah, I would be the first to say if it had cucumber and I wouldn't be able to get on with it. But but no, it's really good. Uh, and as you say, it's the sort of thing that you might expect to be a more of a summer drink. I think that works really well now. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's it's four it's four o'clock on a Friday, so there's not many things that don't work at four o'clock on a Friday. Um, <laughs> but um, so uh, I I love the brand name. That's so cool. And um, many people will remember that during lockdown there was a bit of a craze for sea shanties. And I had two very small children, and in my quest to avoid nursery rhymes at all costs. I started singing sea shanties to my kids when they were very tiny. And one of them that I was singing was by the same guys who had the... Are you going to do it now, George? I'm not going to do it now. <laughs> but it was called John Paul Jones is a Pirate. Okay. Uh, and it's a very really? rousing song. I get the feeling that whoever wrote the song didn't have quite the same view of him as you do because they were rather less charitable about his exploits. But um, a, a yeah. very good song. Well, they were scared of him. Yeah. What are they called? The Longest Johns is the name of the band. I highly recommend people go and look it up. And uh, yes, a, a very good piece of branding that I approve. And I'm just disappointed I haven't got a chance to drink it with you. Well, if, hopefully they'll get their act together. It will arrive at some point and you can you can drink it and enjoy it. Yeah, well, I definitely will. You just reminded me of that song that went huge at the end of lockdown. Is it Wellerman? Yeah, same band. Gets in your head big time. <laughs> Good. So, but I, I have also the Lonan rum. I've also got lined up the Ranger rum to go with some tonic in a second. And then I'm going to have this darker Lonan rum 
There we go. On some ice. That's a Providence. <laughs> I think that one's called. They're all named after his ships. Oh, really? that's good. And um, yeah, we're going to be fairly incoherent by the end of the podcast, aren't we? But yeah. I don't suppose that's that will matter. That's uh, <laughs> par for the course. Par for the course. Yeah. So, George, what are you drinking instead? Well, I was given a. It's, I was trying to think of something um, at quite short notice that would be sort of on a similar sort of level. And so, what I've got is something the, the most tropical sort of drink that I could find in the house. And at Christmas, I was given by a very good friend a bottle of orange gin, homemade orange gin. So think slow gin, but orange. And it's, I assume, made in broadly the same way. It There's quite a lot of sediment. And since it's just been sitting on the side since Christmas, and it had settled right out, rather like a bottle of orangina. And you have to give it a jolly good shake before pouring. But actually, it's very good. I was wondering whether it was going to be very sharp or very, very, very ginny. But it's sort of got the same level of sweetness as slow gin would do. But it tastes of orange. And it's very, very good. Very good indeed. It's got uh, quite a color to it. Um, and wow, it's sort of, um, it's not clear. It's very sort of thick. And that's all the sediment. But it's absolutely delicious. I've never seen one of those. Nor have I. I've never come across it before. I mean, you think you've seen them all, haven't you? But uh, then something else comes along. There's another one that's um, that's a, a fruit liqueur. Can't remember the brand, but um, my mum absolutely loves it, which is a, a blood orange one. And then there's a few marmalade ones kicking about as well, marmalade gin. But this is the first, you know, straight up orange one that I've come across. Very good. Well, Great. that will get you set to read out some list of correspondence. Well, it will. That is a very professional link, Chris. Very well done. Um, <laughs> this episode of the guns on pegs podcast is sponsored by basque the british association for shooting and conservation now chris we often talk on this podcast about some of the pressures that shooting faces whether that's shooting social license or political interference or misinformation in the media indeed and this is one of those ads that doesn't really need to be an ad in order for us to say this basque is right at the front line of tackling these problems but they need your support simply put your community needs your help but how can i help i hear our listeners asking <laughs> easy one george the simplest and easiest way that you can help is by joining basque and becoming part of an unrivaled and long-standing community of over 145,000 members who share a passion for the future of sustainable shooting conservation Basque members enjoy a wide range of benefits and offers, including public liability insurance cover, something that every game shot should have, unlimited access to Basque's specialist firearms team, plus discounts on a wide range of products, including shooting apparel, even vehicles and complimentary admission to a range of exciting events across the UK, including the Game Fair. We are both big supporters of Basque and the work they do for shooting, aren't we, Chris? And we firmly believe that anyone who loves shooting should be a member. To become a Basque member... Visit basque.org.uk slash join. Basque is registered and authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority. Back to the podcast. So, Jamie, what we like to do now is whose bird is it anyway? It's where we ask people to send in their shooting dilemmas and their quandaries and their queries that they can't find a way out of and they need our help with i keep all our correspondence anonymous to protect the guilty and this one comes from somebody i have named king edward no relation of 
Edward King of AYA Rizzini. I hadn't thought of that, but no, no relation. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, I'm a bit more creative than that. <laughs> Maybe there's a, t- a potato link, potato clue there. Uh, there. There might be. I, I think if they're really guilty, you should start doing that. Just just turn their first names and surnames around and just say, <laughs> we've anonymized you. <laughs> anyway, King Edward has written, not sure if it's been asked before or not, but where do you stand on tipping the keeper on your beater's day? I would always tip on a shoot day, but I beat on two shoots. On one, we get fed and watered extremely well with a brilliant beater's day and a thank you meal. We always do a whip round for the keeper to say thank you. But on the other shoot, the keeper is miserable, never brings us even a bottle of port to share around on a cold day's beating. And on the beater's day, we supply all our own food and drink. I feel that on this shoot, I shouldn't tip the keeper as beater's day is our day and should be his way of saying thanks to us for all the hard work we and our dogs do throughout the season. Am I right or wrong? This is a great question, and he's it's right. Good. We've never, ever discussed tipping the keeper on Beater's Day. The Beater's tipping the keeper. Oh, Jamie, over to you. Well, I don't know. I, th- I think I don't think there's any um, hard and fast rule on this, is there? I mean, I think... Uh, no. I mean, the be- the keeper may well be shooting himself, probably is on the on the Beater's Day, and it's probably most of his mates that he's got there. Uh, we we had our Beater's Day actually a couple of days ago, and it's, it was all the, the shoot helpers and beaters and uh, one or two others that that have just been invited along. And I I don't think uh, I don't think there's any necessity necessarily under those circumstances for the te- the keeper to be tipped or that he would expect to be. But maybe it it might be a nice touch. You know, people have had a good a good. Season. I mean, it depends very much on the shoot, I guess, doesn't it? Really, I mean, some some shoots uh, like ours where you know there are. Uh, our shoot helpers get, have boundary days and things through the season, and uh, but we don't actually have a you know we don't have a, a keeper. We, have, we we do it all with volunteers anyway, so it wouldn't really apply. So, th- but you you've you've touched upon something there, in that the term beaters day is a bit of a catch all for for sort of informal days at the end of the season because sometimes they are keepers days, like you say, where the keeper invites mates and chooses who he wants to shoot. Um, and sometimes they are very much for the beaters, and the keeper will still be in the in in the line, uh, not not the gun line, sorry, in the beating line. And then other times they're sort of shoot owner host days where they just fight along a bunch of people who've sort of been involved throughout the year. I've been invited on a few of those over the years where we've just sort of you know one that maybe has done very well out of guns on pegs and just rings us up and says, "Would you like to come along?" Uh, actually, Whit- Whitfield did that once. Oh, I was shooting there on Monday. <laughs> Lovely. It was <laughs> Saturday. No, not Monday. Saturday. Last Saturday, I was shooting. It's, it's difficult when you shoot every day, isn't it, to remember which one? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, the the, uh, the Beatus Day at Whitfield a few years ago was uh, the only time I've ever been 400 out in a sweepstake. Yeah. <laughs> but too high or too low? <laughs> too low. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. We certainly left them a few. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But I mean, the, this question of, I mean, it sounds to me like uh, tipping is always discretionary. And, you know, if you think that this keeper on the second shoot is a bit of a dick, then don't tip him. You know, there's ne- you, you should never feel that you're compelled to tip if you don't think that a tip is warranted right yeah i think that's right i mean it's pretty i have once seen a, a gun not tip, tip a keeper because he just felt that he wasn't doing his job properly but it's pretty rare isn't it i think it's sort of expected really but I, I, yeah you're right i mean it is entirely discretionary and um... i think he is leading towards that with what he said you know 
tipping, I think expecting the beaters to tip the keeper generally to the same level is not, I don't think that would be expected. Uh, On the basis that you don't do beating for the money, do it more for the fun, but it's nice to have a little bit of reward for it. But the but the the tip is likely to be more than the beaters pay would be for that day <laughs> well i mean the the yeah. beaters day is sort of in itself a tip isn't it yeah yeah definitely yeah so the idea it, of it, tipping it, because you received a tip is slightly odd isn't it yeah yeah i think i think it's yeah i know i think also it's um on a lot of shoots i think there would be a bit of awkwardness about money changing hands under those circumstances i think um you know, gone are the days on a lot of shoots where there's a sort of formal distinction between a keeper and beaters and guns and everybody. I think quite so. A lot yeah. of shoots, everybody sort of mucks in together a lot more now, don't they? Really. Uh, but where he, where he said this, the, the the keeper that he likes is you know uh, brings stuff along. Uh, you know, is always basically good fun. I think maybe it's a, maybe it's a chance to bring along sort of your concoction of slow gin as the tip type thing yeah you know those sort those sorts yeah. of things or a for the keeper of John Paul Jones rum exactly so that money money's not the thing it's just a here's a little that you know whatever that that each person comes up with or even a contribution towards the day that's 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 maybe expected i don't know not not financially i mean like something to make it go better you know yeah so uh, so i think we're on the side of this guy generally don't tip him if you don't want to, but we're li- a little less certain about tipping on Beater's Day in general. Yes, and maybe it's not. Maybe it's not really the thing. I wouldn't have thought um, it was a bit of a grey area, though. Yeah, I. I think. I think. Yeah, there's a lot of. Well, I'm not sure when this pod goes out, but we probably just miss, miss Beater's Day. So, uh, be, lots of people probably listening to this will be thinking, "Ah, crap! That that solves what I should have done in that scenario <laughs> yesterday or whatever it is." Yes, it is. It, it will um, go out after the event. I think uh, it goes out on Tuesday, okay. which is oh no, there's still a couple of days left. There might be a couple more Beater's Days being squeaked in. I think. Um, okay. But, uh, yes, very good. Right, Chris. Unpopular opinions, please. From someone that you have called Anna. Um, oh. King Edward? Well, I'm, it's a bit of a tricky one because I'm a bit worried that if I give you the reason, I will slightly give the game away. But yes, Jamie was correct when he said that there's a potato connection. Ah. And that's, I think, as far as I'm prepared to go. Uh, okay. I'm none the wiser. No, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so we've got an unpopular opinion from someone that George has called Anna, who says, why are you beating in tweed breeks if you aren't a gamekeeper or in the gun line. Most of us that shoot love the sense of tradition that goes with it. The tweed, the socks and the garters, the elevens is tipple, the strange looks you get at the petrol station. The continuing popularity of shooting brings in new ideas to challenge these traditions. New lighter, more waterproof and quicker drying fabrics have been invented that don't hold on to the musty odour of the back of your cupboard when they've been stored since the end of January. So why do people who aren't gatekeepers insist on wearing tweed breeks to go beating? Generally, if you're beating, you'll be snagged in brambles, climbing barbed wire fences and getting drenched. It's anything but glamorous. And if you're not going through brambles, etc., you're probably going around them avoiding the job you're there to do. I've been known to wear breeks if I'm on a beat one stand one shoot, but these breeks are a £20 vinted bargain bought for Beater's Day and Small Syndicate's Day. If they get ripped or trash, I'm not going to be too concerned. I leave the handmade breeks at home for days when I know I'm stood solely on the peg. If you're going to wear tweed breeks from one of the top outfitters on a small syndicate shoot, don't complain to your host about the state of said breeks after you've been beating in them. 
Okay, that last line suggests everything where this has come from. Up yes, until that I, point, I thought this was just generally an opinion. Someone has done something and complained when they've turned up beating <laughs> in bricks, and this person has gone off on a rant. I'm not going through there. I'll ruin my bricks. Yes, that's what's happened. Ah. Changes everything, I was thinking, up until that point. So what were you thinking up until that point, Chris? Well, I think people... do. Yeah, beating what the hell you want to beat in but don't then complain because you know the score with beating okay yeah jamie do you agree well i don't know i mean unless you've transgendered anna in your in anonymizing them i think that it's 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 a bit of a sort of uh if i can put it this way a little bit of a sort of girly obsession with uh clothes here i don't, I don't think the blokes really mind too much what they wear do they really but and, and coming from dumfriesia um where it rains most of the time most people would be wearing waterproof trousers on most days over what over whatever they've got underneath which is probably going to be something tweed anyway particularly if they're going to be beating going through kale or something like that yeah i don't know i mean i it wouldn't occur to me really to wear uh, um after the sort of balmy days of the new sort of trend of shooting grouse in chinos what uh in august after so, those sorry, days sorry. have gone uh, uh, hold on <laughs> this is not this is not a trend i've seen yet really tweet yes okay no well there's some enlightened more owners who tell you to turn up in chinos to shoot grouse when it's very hot in august and september i'm not sure how i feel about that thereafter it wouldn't it wouldn't occur to me to wear anything other than than Plus wars either for shooting or beating because because I mean you know it, they're designed to to you know withstand the weather and uh, thick thorns and all the rest of it. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that 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 these days a lot of the plus fours that you see advertised or buy off the peg uh, because they're you know increasingly there are lots of lots of them you can buy off the peg are made out of very thin tweed that you would simply wouldn't have seen years ago. Everybody had very thick hairy sort of tweed. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They should be sort of near enough bulletproof, really. Yeah, I guess yeah. I guess those yeah. that sort of tweet is a lot less practical. If your correspondent has whichever chromosome it is, is the female one ones, uh, then I guess they might have that very lightweight sort of tweed bought for its aesthetic appeal rather than for its practicality. So that could put them in a bit of a quandary, perhaps. Mm. And we don't know the gender of the person that's definitely complained, and she, that's what's caused no. Anna to write in. So. It's it's hard to say, but mm. I, I I have little. I I would be perfectly happy for somebody to wear breeks beating, and I have done myself. And and as Jamie says, they are eminently practical for it. They're good for you know going up and down hills and getting over gates and all the sort of things that you have to do when you're beating. But I do have a problem with people complaining about them getting ripped because rather like a dress shirt is inevitably going to get red wine on it breeks are inevitably going to get ripped at some point it you just have that's just par for the course at some point you're going to get hung up on a barbed wire fence whether you're a gun or a beater you're going to get snagged on a thorn or whatever something is going to happen uh and your your breeks will be gone for the but i almost feel like they're not proper breeks until they've been repaired once yeah. So, you know, the more holes, the better, really. That's yeah. My, I, yeah. So she's she's kind of saying, don't wear breeks beating. I can, I do really disagree with that. I encourage the breeks on any role on the shoot day. But as you say, 
just make sure that if you do, you you know what you're in for, you're prepared. But at the same time, if you are slightly bothered and breeks are pricey versus other garments, actually, they're really not when you think about it. I was about to say, you know, like the Sealand and Harkina trousers, which are sort of, you know, staples. A thousand pounds, yeah. They're not cheap, are they? But they are bulletproof. No. Yeah. So that's the thing. They Maybe they'll last for years through all the brambles, but you got to, there's a fair outlay to get them. <laughs> so I think that's fairly unanimous. I think this is an unpopular opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm with her on the complaining. Because there's definitely two opinions in here. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Yeah. Okay, finally, um, we have got a Forgotten Drive submission. So, Jamie, we've been talking for a long time about drives that no longer exist for whatever reason and asking people to reminisce. And uh, this, I don't keep these ones anonymous because I don't feel that anybody needs to be. So this one comes from Jack. And Jack has written, Gentlemen, My contribution to your segment for the pod is not so much a forgotten drive, but more appropriately, lost drives. I'm lucky enough to play a major part in the running of the shoot which my grandfather set up in the mid-70s and is continued by my father to the present day. We still have a strong number of the team who were present at the shoot's inception, running 15 or so days per season. Until the mid-2000s, the shoot included a 250-acre factory site, Surrounded on three sides by the backwaters, this island is a maze of marshland, reed beds, water meadows, blackthorn, brackish sinkholes and dikes, willow and poplar belts and oak woods with a thick bracken floor. The area provided rich habitat for a wide variety of game and waterfowl. Double digits of winged species in the bag were regularly achieved. Alas, with tightening health and safety regulations on the site, drives such as Timbuk2, Timbuk3, Water Tower, Car Park, Silver Willows and Main Factory have been consigned to the history books. (laughs) One of the most characterful of these lost drives was certainly the Water Tower. The guns would line out behind a belt with a 50-foot wrought iron water tower at one end. The drive consisted of an eight-acre reed bed riddled with brackish sinkholes and hidden ditches that could submerge an unwary beater as they waded through the head-high reeds and blackthorn. A raised track halfway through gave the opportunity for a headcount to ensure no one was left behind. (laughs) Despite the hardship for the beaters, the guns were in a species bag utopia. The usuals, pheasants, partridges, pigeons, woodcock and snipe were regularly bagged, but it was not uncommon for teal, mallard, coots, moorhens, golden plover and more to be in the bag as they climbed over the belt. At the end of the drive, laughs and jokes were had as someone would empty their welly of the stinking water and dogs would reappear a different shade from when they entered. On one of the last days on Main Factory, my father only wanted to stand to have a go for a woodcock. As the opportunity began to present itself, and as my father raised his gun, an overly keen stop waved his flag and promptly sent the woodcock hurtling off in the other direction. The stop was jokingly presented his P-45 at that evening's beater's meal. (laughs) Unfortunately, I can't describe every tale, but 20 years on, these tales of the lost factory drives are regaled amongst the young and old members of our shoot with much nostalgia, whilst we continue to come together to run the rest of the shoot. It brings regular guns and beaters together, and it symbolises to me what's so important about these days, a shared experience and common ground between the young and the old, experienced and inexperienced, the wealthy and the not-so. 
A community is created by game shooting unlike any other, and its value to physical and mental well-being is immeasurable. I hope this has provided a fun picture in one's mind for you and the listeners. And whilst these lost drives might be unique, I hope it's evoked fond memories of your own bygone times of your own shooting adventures. Go well, Jack. Lovely. Great. Very good, isn't it? He hasn't mentioned why. Did he mention why it was lost? Uh, Yes, health and safety. This old factory site. Yeah. Elf and safety. I like the idea that you might lose beaters halfway through the drive. It's that sort of... (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like an amazing bit of ground. What to comment? I mean, um, I'm I'm a bit older than you guys, but uh, I mean, looking back through my game book from sort of even just sort of 20 years ago, hell of a lot of shoots. I mean, I can think of about 10 just in this county alone where I used to shoot regularly that no longer going for whatever reason. Hmm. And... uh, I think the you know the a friend of mine wrote a a book recently called the Lost Race Courses of Britain about all the race ah. courses that no longer exist and uh, maybe there's a maybe there's a market for the lost shoots of Britain uh, that would be very interesting um, yeah it's interesting that there's a, a crossover between what you've just said we have a drive here on the farm called Gallops because there used to be a training gallops on that bit of the farm. And I'm pretty certain that a Grand National winner was trained there. And now I can't remember the name of the horse, which is annoying. But one of the things that really stood out for me in this is the names of the drives, which is, as you know, Chris, something I've had a bee in my bonnet about for quite a long time. I love drive names. (laughs) I would love to know the story behind Timbuk2 and Timbuk3. Um, (laughs) But that, that Timbuk three is the perfect shoot drive name. Yeah. It's it's ex- you could you know exactly how that came about. It was a spare moment when someone was trying to explain where the next bit was, and uh, it, I reckon yeah, Timbuk two is really far away, and Timbuk three is a bit further away. Yeah, I would <laughs> exactly. guess that's probably it. Yeah. <laughs> so I would like to propose a new feature, Chris. Yeah, which is rather than forgotten drives your favourite drive name and the story behind the name of that drive. I like that. I yeah. love that. It needs the story. It needs the oh, story. Because yeah. often you've got a cracking drive name you can think of, but no one really knows the story. Good. Uh, g- g- uh, g- go on, off the top of your head, yours. Ooh. Well, so I've, I've mentioned Gallops, which isn't terribly exciting, but it does tell the history of the place a bit. We've got one, on, we've got one called Adley Dell, and I'm not entirely clear who Adley was or why he has a Dell named after him. And I, Dell's a bit of a strong term. It should really be called Adley's Depression or something like that, um, <laughs> certainly given how the drive went this year. But the, most of ours are just fairly descriptive or borrow the field name or something like that. We do have a field mm. name. We've got two interesting ones. One, Dead Well, which is reportedly where someone fell down a well. We have Gun Site, where they had um, uh, anti-aircraft guns during the war. And we've yeah. also got Three Maids Hill, which is where reportedly three uh, young ladies were buried up to their necks, accused of witchcraft. So there's there's always stories. You've done rather well in regard to the new feature there. <laughs> I mean, Three three Maids Hill, that, that's a story. It's <laughs> still called that. Yes, although um, I've not been able to find any written record of it anywhere. If you Google it, you just get the name of the roundabout. Oh, really? Yeah. Jamie, have you got any that come to mind? Uh, well, yeah. Actually, the ones here, we haven't got any particularly spectacular names, but uh, there's I, I shoot. There's one place I shoot where there's, um, there's one called the Old, La- Old Woman's Garden, <laughs> which conjures up all <laughs> sorts of images. But I think, I think the um, 
probably the cottage that they went with the garden is now a ruin. And one imagined that at one stage they went through her garden to beating out the, the pheasants probably in Edwardian times or something. I shot somewhere the other day one there was a, a drive called Deadpole because they found uh, a dead body in there a few years ago who happened to be a poor old Polish guy who'd uh, wandered into the wood and had a heart attack or something. Oh, God. Uh, it's a bit macabre. Yeah, it'll come to me. They're, they're, I'm sure there are. I mean, there's. I suppose what's a bit of a pity in some ways is um, the, the sort of commercialization of shooting, which in many ways has been a a good thing but it's sort of you know there's now a sort of pressure to have sort of it's become a bit like golf you know you have signature drives with rather Uh, like signature holes and people tend to call drives by sort of silly names to to uh uh, yes yes sort of emphasize how high they are you know sort of north face of the Eiger or (laughs) everest or something like that which i suppose is rather a shame in some ways because there are some lovely old rather like field names you know it's all part of local history isn't it i I agree and they get tend to get lost a bit like renaming pubs so something slightly outspoken here not for the first time i think any drive that is named after the the intended feeling of the shoot owner on the guns should be banned yeah uh so so any drive that's called like exasperation or something stupid like that, uh, I just they that really annoys me. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's what you're getting at, isn't it? Yes, yeah, I humili- am a bit. Like, yeah, yeah I, honestly, I, I am a bit. Um, although, I mean, actually, um, you looked at from the other end of the telescope. I've got a great friend where I, I, I shoot pretty much have shot pretty much every year for the last 20 or 30 years and one of the drives is always called the blank drive (laughs) 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 and And it's the busiest drive on the shoot (laughs) well no sometimes i have known it blank but not very often (laughs) we used to do um one of my best mates is uh they've actually their parents have now sold it but they had their little farm in norfolk and um we would walk around the farm just getting all sorts of species and there was one patch of the farm with a small sort of uh a very small wood in it and we called it thousand bird wood because occasionally we'd get one out of it yeah <laughs> and yeah. so every, every yeah. time we went up there we'd be like and new people who hadn't done it before oh well we're going to thousand bird wood in a minute and they'll yeah, no, i think already is something. good i think yeah yeah i like that <laughs> i like that a lot right so King Edward and Anna and Jack and you, Jamie, are the newest members of the most noble order of the garters and will very soon be in receipt of a set of the much-coveted Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters. Oh, wow. If you have got a shooting confession, quandary, or a query that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, or if you'd like to share an unpopular opinion, or if you'd like to tell us about a drive with a very good name and you would like a set of garters, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. <laughs> Good. Well, they'll be very welcome because I, I was looking looking at my garters the other day, and the moth have sort of had, pretty much had them. Uh, so, oh, really? So These are quite loud. Good. Good. Yeah, happy with loud garters. So, Jamie, you've talked a little bit about your shoot at home. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Um, I think you run it just for friends and family and that sort of thing. Is that right? I do really. I mean, um, the shoot has been a sort of uh, barometer, really, of um, my. Uh, finances and general well-being over the last uh, <laughs> 25 years or so i mean when i was growing up uh, my father ran it very much on sort of traditional lines as everybody well not everybody but as a lot of people did in those days you know we had a, a full-time keeper and um, lots of days and it was all pretty much kept private and then gradually started letting a few days to to help meet a sort of rising 
costs and um then i i took over with actually with um really uh no money in the bank at all and so we then we then took the decision to go commercial and really let it to a shoot operator as a way of keeping our keeper in a job until he retired which and i used to get a couple of days back and how was that period for you? That's obviously a big change from what it was. That must have been quite a sort of weird thing to go it through. It was a way. bit. It was a bit. And I, I didn't, uh, to be honest, I didn't really like the sort of cultural shift very, very much, really. But it, it you know, it was, uh, it was the right thing to do to keep, you know, to keep somebody in a job and just to keep, keep things going. Was it nice to have a cut? A couple of days where yeah. you didn't have any sort of involvement. You just sort of turned up in your own shoot a couple of decent days. and Yeah, on the other hand, that's yes. I mean, yes and no. I mean, actually um, felt a bit awkward really having, you know, sort of uh, being sort of in control, but not in control, if you see what I mean. Uh, true, yeah. To be honest, it became a bit tiresome with, uh, you know, having uh, lots of days going on around us and a lot of, a lot of disturbance. Probably wasn't very good for the... The wildlife or anything like that so <clears throat> anyway then that all came to an end and so then i didn't didn't do anything really for a few years we just we just used to have a bit of rough shooting and shoot shoot the old snipe and uh, the odd pheasant the very occasional pheasant and pigeons and that sort of thing uh and then i've just sort of gradually in the last few years just been building it up again to the point where we're probably shooting sort of between 70 and 100 70 and well i think our best day was 94 this year between 70 and 100 uh on about six days of the year and doing it all uh you know with with volunteers and uh that that's very satisfying in itself really um and everybody uh gets you know a lot of satisfaction out of it absolutely i try to um look at everything that we do on the estate on a on a sort of spectrum from regenerative to degenerative and i think that there were times when we were really doing a lot of shooting and perhaps putting down rather too many birds where i think it was a little bit degenerative for our sort of ecosystem here but i I think what we're doing now is is positive that's a fascinating point that that you you look at it like that because i i wonder how many do and it is a really important way to look at it, and 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 I think the most crucial part you said there is for your ecosystem because everything, yeah. every every bit of land is so different, isn't it? And what one shoot can take is a lot more than another shoot, and so on. Do you think that the shoot? I mean, I don't know how big it was, but in terms of sort of GWCT guidelines, I don't know how familiar you are with those either. But like, do you think it was sort of really over? Overdoing it, or was it- oh, I think we were probably you know sort of within within guidelines things, but it but but it was um, I mean we were sort of shooting sort of 150 200 birds, but on but on on really quite a lot of days, and and um, I think we possibly were putting down too many. I mean certainly when we stopped, for example, we'd had quite a, a large buzzard population probably fed on on quite a lot of pul- well pults initially but then then um mm. birds that hadn't been picked or whatever later on in the season whatever mm. and uh you know and and that that just went back down to sort of normal levels afterwards and um you know now we have a few buzzers around but they're not they're not really an issue and what is the ground like jamie what what's the what's the terrain and and the, um, the makeup of the estate? well it's 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 coastal uh it's quite low lying i think the highest point is 100 150 feet above sea level or something but we've got we've got sort of undulating 
It's basically sort of two valleys, really, with a sort of hog's back in the middle, close to the sea. So we've got a couple of cliff drives where we stand some of the guns on the beach. Oh, wow. Uh, we've got quite a lot of snipe bogs. It's just sort of marshy areas close to the sea or along the along a uh, side of a, a burn. And then we and, and most of the woodland now is sort of deciduous woodland. We're trying to get rid of all the, the spruce and that sort of thing. Beech and oak, which is sort of, you know, what the pheasants pheasants like, which is, uh, I mean, down in Hampshire, you've got a lot of that, but up here it's comparatively rare, really. Mm. Most shooting is in coniferous woodland. Yeah, so it's um, it's a t- it's sort of typical sort of low ground shoot, really. And and you're a big hunting man as well. Do, do you hunt over the land there? We do hunt here, but uh, we, it's incre- increasingly hard with the new law. We have the we have the kennels here. I rarely get on a horse these days myself. I think my back is pretty much jiggered, really. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I enjoy my hunting. But uh, but sadly, I mean the 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 law in Scotland has has really made it very difficult we can only use two hounds at the moment so so that came in uh three months ago it came in it came in at the worst possible time because the uh we just started and, uh, and hounds were really starting to get sort of fired up and were going really well and then and then they brought in this um virtual ban really saying we could only take two hounds out at any one time so it was a bit like i mean our huntsman george said that um it's a bit like a university where you got to the end of freshers week and said right that's it now we're we're in lockdown now no more parties Mm. and these poor old hounds went you know ballistic sort of locked up in kennels and hardly going out so it caused a real a real problem actually what's the score with the hounds then now what's your plan well we're having to reduce reduce the numbers and um we're hoping to get a get licenses to be able to carry on doing what we were doing um, which, which was using a reasonable pack of you know sort of up to 14 couple of hounds to flush foxes out of woodland to, to guns but that may or may not be be possible i don't know we're we're, we're applying for licenses we're, we'll see what what the civil servants serve up have there have there been licenses given to others so far i think there have been something like two given out in the whole of scotland so far that's uh, to be expected months. isn't it yeah <laughs> and uh so it's very, very difficult, and you know our, our huntsman George and his partner Polly. I mean, they they sadly are, are leaving to find pastures new because they, you know, understandably they don't want to carry on under these circumstances, and and that has a direct impact on the local economy. And uh, you know they've got a a child who uh, their son who was about to start at the village school and now won't be, and that you know the village school is in danger of closing because of the numbers, and you know that's one more young fa- family driven out of the you know the, out of out of the Scottish countryside because of mm. the prejudice of politicians. And and you know we talked a little bit earlier about your your activities on on Twitter and your your activism, and and when you hear you, when when I hear you talking about it like that, it kind of makes a lot of sense why you would be so vocal, and and I think it it drives home how important. Um, activities like hunting, stalking, fishing, shooting are in, you know, the the, the more rural areas. You know, I, I suppose, it, you know, I shouldn't really say it, but I don't suppose that if uh, shooting and fishing and hunting were banned in, uh, and stalking rather were banned in Hampshire, it would actually have all that much of a negative impact on the the local economy. You know, there's a lot of other stuff going on here, but. Um, but up in your neck of the woods, there's not there's not quite so much, and and the the local communities in the villages and the shops and the the schools and the pubs and all that sort of thing, you know, they do rely on there being a permanent population, and, and they also rely on people 
coming in from outside to enjoy those things, don't they? Yeah, completely. Uh, and, um, you know, what's, what's ironic is that, you know, jobs are jobs are being destroyed the whole time by artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, there are, there, are, there are fewer petrol pump attendants or hardly any now, and there won't be many checkout girls soon, or, you know, all these bank banks are closing the whole time. And, also, and all these jobs are being destroyed. But, the, you know, the jobs that that can never be done by robots are uh, huntsmen and keepers and stalkers and gillies i mean and these are these are the, ironically the jobs that we're losing at the moment and uh, they're not they're not being replaced by wildlife rangers or anything yeah. like that because you know those you know, there, there are there are those jobs but i mean they you know they're there anyway they're, they're not going to be necessary any more of them by stopping hunting shooting and well fishing is in danger of stopping anyway so yeah it's a real issue and um you know, fortunately, we have a very, very good Scottish Gamekeepers Association who are, you know, have a, a sort of authentic blue collar voice, which mine isn't. And uh, they are listened to a little bit by the politicians. But, you know, we've got this green coalition uh, who really don't like traditional, the traditional way the, the countryside is managed with field sports and, and farming. They would prefer to see everything wilded and all the jobs go. They don't really care about them. That, that, that's the last, that last thing you said, is it, isn't it? They just don't care. There's just not even a consider for the consequences, is there? It just at all costs, we want it gone because that's our opinion. Is, is, that, is that the feeling? Well, I think in some ways they, 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 they quite like to make it worse. They, they, the, the worst things are... Um, the more chance they have of, of you know bringing about the sort of revolution they want and uh, you know so they really they, you know, they genuinely don't care and a, a lot of things they're deliberately making worse I think I wanted to ask you Jamie because I know that the, the way you run your farm is um, very considered um, and, and we got hints of that with you talking about um, you know uh, and the, the way you measure activity on on the farm regenerative and degenerative I should say where do you stand on the concept of rewilding What's your what's your view? Um, I think I think I think it sort of kind of depends. I mean, I, the, the, there's a lot of misunderstanding about rewilding, and from a landowner's perspective, um, you know, we've all been doing a lot of this stuff for, for years. Really, it's just we haven't really been calling it rewilding necessarily. And there's a there, it's not a binary thing between farming and rewilding. Uh, you, there's a spectrum uh, th- that we're all on, <clears throat> which has at at one end, uh, possibly your friend King Edward, uh, if he's a, <laughs> a large arable farmer growing, growing potatoes and cereals and things uh, in a very intensive way, which you, we need if we're going to carry on feeding ourselves. Uh, and the, the, other, the other end of the spectrum, you've got somewhere like Nep, uh, where Charlie Burrell is uh, you know, doing, doing great things, not, not by completely rewilding, but actually by farming on a very extensive basis with uh, longhorn cattle and pigs and deer and and, and Exmoor ponies, and you know, and everybody's sort of on that spectrum, and and it, and it it doesn't necessarily mean that all of your farm is on any particular one place on that spectrum. You you have some bits that are that are farmed very intensively, and other bits that are effectively really almost rewilded. You know, we, we we've got patches of scrub and reed beds and willow, lots of willows and that sort of thing, and and, and uh, some of our woodlands have been allowed to get very overgrown with fallen trees left lying and that sort of thing cattle now in the in some of our woods so i'm i'm i'm, I'm all for a bit more of it have you have you got bits around you being bought up for um for you know the the rewilding that is you know kick everyone off and plant trees or is that uh, not yeah there, there's quite a lot of that going on yeah and uh 
you know again again the the uh, the, the net effect is is detrimental because the shepherd loses his job uh, there's a little bit of money changes hands with people actually planting the trees but then you know you go away and leave them for 30 years and then go back and thin them if it's commercial forestry and if it, and if it's just trees being planted just to you know on, on a sort of non-commercial basis then uh, there's even less work for them so uh, it's it's a, there's a real hollowing out at the moment and We've seen this week on the, in the Highlands, uh, the, the, they've taken a leaf out of the French book and got on their tractors and, and, and are starting to complain about the, the new clearances, really, that, that's happening. I think with all this sort of worrying negativity, and, uh, and not negativity on your part, but towards uh, these communities, I, th- I was going to ask you, what is it that you think people should be doing? Because it feels like a bit of a tidal wave, as you say, because of their desire to achieve a certain amount of change um i mean getting in attractors and organizing a very french style rally is 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 one thing you can do what would be your your message to others to to sort of try and arrest this change well i don't know i mean it, it again it sort of depends really um you know i mean we've we've embraced change here and brexit was a wake-up foot call for us we weren't we weren't farming efficiently enough we changed what we were doing we 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 brought in a New Zealand-style dairy, and and that and that Touchwood has worked really well, and we've created lots of jobs uh, doing that, and uh, but also done it in such a way that we've we've actually um, it's been better really for wildlife. We've our bird counts have gone up a lot. That's good to hear. For others, you know, they're in a difficult a difficult place if their land isn't. Is, I mean, we're at sea level here. If you're farming up in the hills, and uh, you know, I think the government cynically. Both governments in Scotland and at Westminster, I think, cynically, probably talk a good game about supporting farmers, but would quite like to see a lot less farmers. Really, I know I'm not sure they're really that bothered. I think they, I think they feel that you know, if a bit of a bit of disruption might be a good thing. It might mm. might drive less efficient farmers out, give others an opportunity, perhaps, to, to farm in a in a in a better way. Uh, but also that if if uh, lots of land goes out of production uh, and is is wilded or more trees or whatever, uh, then that's going to help them meet these spurious net zero targets. I mean, I think you know we're in a so we're in a we're in, a lot of people are in quite a bad place, and of course, you know most just well not most but a lot of estates have got these traditional tenancies, which means that there simply isn't the flexibility to change. And you need to you need to change to the new circumstances, but a lot of people simply can't do that, and the, the farms are too small probably to to make a go of things. And you know you've got you've got the older generation are probably keeping going at all, at all costs because they're they've got their house is part of the tenancy. They might not be making any money, but they have a, a free roof over their heads. The younger generation maybe mm. don't want to come back because they can see that it's not going to work. And uh, yeah, so we're we're we're, we're heading into a really sort of uh, interesting and and for for many people a very upsetting and and, and difficult time in farming at the moment but jamie before christmas you wrote a very powerful i thought piece on scribe hound about what you think people can do and maybe it's your military back background coming on coming through rather um i get the feeling that you want to take the fight to to westminster to holyrood um, and and not just uh, lie back and be conquered, but but to to try and do something about it. Um, perhaps without repeating the entire thing, perhaps you can summarise uh, for anybody who may not have read the article. Well, um, what 
what you were saying in that piece. Yeah, well, I was I was saying that people really need to engage in the the battle of ideas that's going on at the moment. Uh, I mean, we've got a, a, a clearly defined opposition to us, people like George Monbiot and Chris Packham, who uh, really do want to change the, the British countryside in, in a, a very profound way. And, and uh, in some senses, they are, they are winning in the battle of, on the airwaves. They get a, a lot of airtime on the BBC. Uh, they've got their Guardian columns and so on. And, um, you know, unless, unless people are prepared to engage with them, uh, then, uh, you know, don't blame me if you turn around in 20 years' time and say, God, bloody hell, it's all gone. Where did that go? Uh, because it has already happened effectively with, with hunting, really, in Scotland. And it, and it may well happen quite quickly in England as well. And the next the next target is definitely going to be shooting. Uh, you can see it in the proposals for licensing. Uh, and we had a foretaste of, of what licensing means uh, this or oh, last uh, summer, 2023, when there was a, a real attempt to to uh, stop shoots uh, close to um, environmentally protected areas to have the ability to put down birds, we've seen it. We've seen it with restrictions on uh, larsen trapping, and every year seems seemingly another another species gets protected, another predator species. You know, and it's all that the, the, the chipping away uh, is happening. And farming uh, as well. I mean, you know, we, we we may well have restrictions on livestock farming and and that sort of thing. So I was, yeah, I wrote on Scribe and say, look, there, you know, there is this battle going on. We we our generation has a unique ability that has never happened before to engage with everybody on social media. If you tweet something and it's sufficiently interesting or thought provoking, and you do it in such a away with hashtags and tagging in the key people and the rest of it, uh, you can be pretty certain that that um, that the point you raise will be seen by members of the cabinet. That that ability has never been there before. I mean, our generation has that ability, but we and and the other and the other side, the Bombios and the Packhams as well, have been very clever at at utilising that. And they've uh, you know they've mastered social media. They've they've all got thousands of followers, which amplify their their voices. Uh, and we on our side uh, have been really slow out of the blocks on this one. So I was saying, look, everybody must, well, first of all, subscribe to Scribehound, which is now where all the, <laughs> all the ideas are being uh, being debated, seems to me. Uh, but also um, they need to get on social media. And uh, the, my article was uh, was promptly uh, disagreed with by Patrick Galbraith in, in a later argument who, who believes that we, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, engage. But, you know, I think, I really think that um, you know we've seen we've seen what's happened with hunting, and we don't want the same thing to happen to to shooting. So it's very important that people get on there, even if even if it's just uh, you know posting positive pictures of what they're doing for for wildlife, laying hedges or whatever it is. Uh, Richard Negus is very good, a good example of somebody who's always posting positive stuff on there. Who's uh, obviously also a keen shooting man, and 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 much of what he does is working on shooting estates where people want want their hedges to be laid for partridges and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, this is all positive stuff that needs to get out there. And if we don't if we don't brag about it and say this is what we're doing and we wouldn't be doing it if we weren't also shooting, uh, then the message isn't going to get across. And there there are a lot of there are a lot of people who are sitting on the fence who are the, you know pretty neutral journalists and broadcasters 
and they need to be made aware of what's going on and and also we need to be able to refute a lot of the lies you know there are there's a lot of false narratives out there and if they're not uh refuted and andrew gilruth i would single out somebody who's a a real countryside hero standing up for the moorland communities defending grouse shooting and 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 the management of of moorland uh unless we get out there and sort of counter some of these false narratives as he does then uh, don't be surprised if an incoming labor government is very heavy-handed with the countryside and, and and brings in all sorts of very unhelpful legislation that 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 will really stop what we're doing your your piece got me thinking as well jamie and a, a short while after i wrote um something that was very much inspired by yours and i, th- I think that there's two elements to this um one is the the broadcast element of it the 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 broad scale uh social media element to it where you're trying to talk to as many people as possible and i i feel very strongly that that we all have an individual responsibility as also to try and uh increase the understanding of the people we meet who are not as part of our world um on a sort of one-to-one basis and and um i think that that's the other really important part of it is you know start dishing out the pheasant take people for a walk around the place uh you know think about um the way you engage with members of the public who are on footpaths on your place that kind of thing i think is super super important and and if you can you know the the uh, charlie jacoby i think is makes the point that most people are pretty ambivalent they don't really feel that strongly one way or the other until they get asked um and then you know if you've done a bit of groundwork there there's a greater probability of them coming down on on our side yeah because so they normally get asked a sort of leading question yeah uh, and these polls uh, are you know normally pretty pretty damaging because uh, polls are a, 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 a weapon rather than you know a barometer they're used by the other side the whole time to and I suppose used sometimes by the countryside alliance really to to uh, try to well, I mean, yeah. they're, they're such rubbish, aren't they? Because, you know, a, a local village in West Wales can be campaigning on what it should do about its badges or something, and it will get like 30,000 people signing it, most of which live in deepest Australia. Yeah. And But the problem is it says 30,000 on it. And so they go, oh, my God, our village really cares about this, despite there being only 500 residents. And so these polls aren't, aren't worth, you know, two pennies. But these some stupid people seem to be swayed by them which is just beyond belief yeah because I, I as you say i think i think most people i mean we we um you know we have we're in a, a high tourism area here we 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 have uh, seven holiday cottages here we have a footpath running through the middle of the place and i can very, i can really hardly think of any any times when i've had any sort of negative comments about hunting or shooting i mean we we the hounds are exercised twice a day around the roads so you've got people in cars coming past you've got walkers you've got uh people in the holiday cottages so they're, they're coming past their windows in the morning and i've had lots of positive comments so it's people saying how nice it is to see them uh i i, I, I genuinely say i've never had anybody saying you know we shouldn't you shouldn't be doing that's, that it's so good to hear that and uh, people these are mostly people. I mean, most of our people are Holocaust come from the big cities in the north of England, Manchester, Newcastle, places like that. And I think, you know, yeah. I mean, maybe it's a northern thing. I mean, maybe if 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 I was down in the 
south of England, it might be slightly different. We don't get many. Well, some of our tourists come from the south of England, but most of them are, are from the north, probably. But and likewise, you know, but it's pretty obvious that we've got pheasants around. I mean, we obviously try to try not to be too sort of obvious about where we're putting pens or feeders or anything, but very little negativity. And yet, uh, you know, when you within the media, you know, it's a, it's a sort of. Uh, it's almost as if it's a done deal that, that, that most people want this to stop. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And, and I think that, that what you said actually is, is the truth. That's what the vast majority of the UK population doesn't care. They're ambivalent. Mm. They, they're, they're open to being uh, educated about, well, this is our way of life here and this is what happens. And they're quite happy yeah. with that. And I think, that, as you say, the media sways it because the media model is broken. I mean, I, without wishing to get onto the business point, but that's one of the reasons we're so passionate about Scribeout because these guys have to produce sensationalist rubbish to get clicks to feed their business model. So in turn, they're responsible for, you know, for increasing the anger among, amongst the, the country because that's the only thing that makes their business work. I mean, it's an absolute travesty, but it's just something that really frustrates me. And I, I've noticed it more in the last year than ever. The quality of some of the content being put out by major news organizations is it's just it's it's journalism created off social media. Like someone posted this and someone fans are up in arms after someone commented this. And it's like, that's not journalism. I mean, it's just it's just taking the most outlandish stuff out there and saying this is the mood of the nation well that's right but i mean that rather proves my point that that, that if if you're not on social media and and, you know that then it's just leaving the field open to them because yeah it's i mean it's it's lazy journalism but it does happen the whole time that um you know even on the even on the sort of 10 o'clock news somebody will you know they will quote something somebody said on twitter yes well I, it's, I, but only I, to feed the yeah to feed the model even more but i <laughs> think yeah. it's I, you know it, we're coming to the end of a shooting season. It's January. The weather's been grim. You know, I had no electricity one day last week and I had no water two days later. And, you know, it can be a pretty bleak time of year. And some of this conversation could potentially sound a little bit on the negative side. But I think certainly last week, was it even earlier this week, there was one very positive news story that was all over the papers. Former podcast guest... Louisa Clutterbuck of Eat Wild getting uh, getting venison and pheasant into de- uh, nurseries and, and and schools is incredibly positive and some stadiums at football stadiums and stuff as well so that's a brilliant good news story yeah and yeah, I, right. I think that there are, there is light and and it's that sort of thing that will help to increase public understanding and and that understanding is so important because it means that when there is the misinformation put out by the various people and organizations who we've mentioned already, then it's less likely to work. Um, and and it, it really does make mm. a, a huge difference that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think you're right to point that out because it did get major coverage in the Times, didn't it? Um, and it and comes back to social license. If people are seeing game, it's more acceptable to then, well, obviously that game needs harvesting. So I understand that, that's social license. Uh, and and so yeah, I mean, getting people to try it, given that it's the end of the season and there's going to be a lot taken away of shoots over the next however long, uh, just getting that into the mouths of those that might not have tried it before or only did once ten years ago, that would be a really good thing to do. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. Right, Jamie. The last part of this pod, the way we like to finish it off, is with desert island shooting. The situation is that the extinction level asteroid hits tomorrow. 
your affairs are in order, your loved ones and enemies reconciled, your dogs are fed and your tomatoes have been watered, your last day begins how? Well, I, I mean, actually, I just I really like shooting here. Uh, yeah, I think you're saying that I mean, maybe I should just get on a plane and go and shoot doves in Argentina or something, I mean, which I probably would like to go and do once maybe, but... Um, I uh, I just really like shooting here because uh, I notice things. I mean, I notice things wherever I'm shooting, but um, it's, it was a particular pleasure to me to shoot here because I, you know, if a if a duck comes, which is a, when you have wild duck here, comes off a, a pond that I have dug and comes over and gets shot, which it did this year, you know, that is that is um, this culmination of years of of work getting that to happen and the same with the snipe and, and pheasants coming out of woods that I have planted and all the rest of it so I think I would uh, I would like to spend perhaps spend my last day reflecting back on on uh, with uh, particularly with a link back to my childhood and everything you know all my strong memories are here I mean there are there are I'm very blessed really I shoot at lots of wonderful places and and, and this shoot is uh, really Vauxhall League compared to uh, something when I talked about <laughs> shooting with my my cousin John Blackett ordered at Whitfield last weekend, and you know that is a fantastic shoot, isn't it? And uh, they do things so well there. And you know there are a lot, there are many much better places to shoot than here. But I, I think that the uh, to me to me the sh- shooting is is the the ultimate sort of fulfilment of of uh, years of of conservation and planning and planting and digging ponds and creating wetlands and and that sort of thing. And that, and so. Uh, that would be my day. What would that look like? What would it? How would it begin? Well, I think we. I think. I. Th- I think. Uh, hopefully, I would have sort of close family and 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 close friends here. Many of whom have shot here for many years, and and uh, we would. Uh, yeah, we would have a, a a day. It might be rather difficult to get beaters if the world is about to end. Uh, so it probably have to be uh, sort of walking and standing. I don't think anyone's observed that point yeah. and realised that you might struggle <laughs> yeah. to get pieces. <laughs> um, uh, but it would be the kind of day that we we normally have on Boxing Day with a, with with family and and um, you know all the nephews and nieces shooting and uh, and we wouldn't necessarily do the the sort of big drives. Not that we have really going for big drives here, but we were you know we would do some of the uh, the wilder parts of the estate. The, uh, snipe bogs and uh, uh, maybe try for a goose it's very exciting if you can put 3,000 geese over a line of guns driving them off a field <laughs> that sounds amazing and I think we would go for a de- <laughs> definitely be, definitely be a species day rather than a you know trying trying for a big bag when was the last time you put 3,000 geese over a line of guns I haven't done it this year I failed to do it this year but uh, last year I did it on my daughter's day and uh, they came they managed to get them so they came over you know at a shootable height which is very important you don't want to wound them and I think yeah. I think they got two or three <laughs> so um, yeah that's <laughs> and then we probably end you know shoot into that we shoot into the dark we have a have a duck flight and um, also maybe have few people standing where they're close to the jackdaw roost and try and shoot some jackdaws as well thin them out yeah so that would be my ideal sort of day and and actually if you got in the guns on pegs private jet you could go back 
eight hours and then finish the day with some doves in Argentina. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, that would be that yeah. would be good. Yeah. yeah and, a sea, and a sea trout. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all possible. Lovely. Sounds like a cracking day. It does sound like a good day. I, I'm still really interested in this. Um, I still, uh, yeah, uh, we, need a, we need a volunteer to, to go back and listen to all the episodes and, and categorize all of the desert island shootings to, to pull out the trends. To, for proper data but there's definitely two camps aren't there which is i want to do what i always do with the people i always do it with and i want to really pull yeah. out all the stops and do something mad yeah and whatever whatever all of them do there's a duck there's always involved. a duck always a duck <laughs> <laughs> yeah which which is very interesting great well jamie thank you ever so so much for coming on it's been great thank you for coming thanks guys and keep up the good work thank you cheers jamie thanks for coming Right, so before we go, all that remains for me to say is that there is a final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve, or by sending us your unpopular opinions, or by sharing your favourite drive names and the stories behind them. Drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com, and if we read it out in the next episode or any future episode, we will send you some garters. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time with another episode, but until then... Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the Guns on Pegs podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please do go and leave a review, hit that follow button, and of course, tell all your friends. See you next time.